1960, I discovered that I didn't belong. I was eight. My parents supported Kennedy for president. Everyone else's parents supported Nixon. My eyes opened. My family was different. My parents were active in the fair housing movement. They hosted business people of color from Africa. No one else knew anyone of color who wasn't a maid or a landscaper. Boys carried sweaty, folded-up pictures of scantily-dressed girls they got from their older brother and giggled about them in the restroom. My mom had introduced my sister and me to the Invisible Woman, a plastic model of the human body with a removable pregnant abdomen. I didn't get the attraction to those nudie pictures. I remember our Unitarian minister, Russell Bletzer, talking to us kids about belonging. That strange, lonely feeling had a name. My parents were Holocaust survivors. They never mentioned belonging. Not until high school did I meet a crew where I felt I belonged. What a relief. I didn't realize I was a white person of privilege until I was in nursing school. More about that later in the episode. But the recognition of my privilege led to my embarrassment about that privilege. I hid it for 40 years by saying I grew up in Chicago and Detroit rather than the Tony suburbs of Highland Park and Gross Point. Now, diversity, inclusion, and equity form the central question of my work. How do I leverage my privilege to advance belonging, the intersection of diversity, inclusion, and equity? Frankly, my colleagues of color have helped me shed my embarrassment and use my privilege to promote belonging in my spheres of influence. Welcome to Health Hats, the podcast. I'm Danny Van Leeuwen, a two-legged cisgender old white man of privilege who knows a little about a lot of health care and a lot about very little. We will listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome circus of health care. Let's make some sense of all of this. I'm grateful to introduce Dwayne Reynolds, the founder and CEO of the Just Health Collective, with a mission to guide organizations in creating cultures of belonging, enabling a fair and just opportunity for everyone to achieve optimal health. Let's meet Dwayne. Dwayne Reynolds, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate this. What got me interested in talking to you was I heard you speak at a conference and the person that introduced you was a white man who was the CEO of a hospital in rural Kansas who said, I got this cold call from this guy who 
wanted me to be on his board of directors. And I'm like, does he know I'm white? <laughs> and you said, absolutely. You're a, a healthcare executive from a rural community. And we need all sorts of outlooks and perspectives managing, helping manage this company. And I thought, okay, it opened my ears even more to the subsequent conversation. And then we spoke afterwards and set this up. Thank you so much, uh, Danny, for having me. I really do appreciate the invitation and opportunity to speak with you and um, your audience. And the person uh, that you're recalling is Benjamin Anderson. He's now a VP of Rural Health Equity for the Colorado Hospital Association. Oh. But at the time, he was uh, you know, CEO of Kearney County Hospital. And I was the president and CEO of the Institute for Diversity and Health. He perhaps rightfully didn't quite know how he fit into that picture, but Part of my purpose was to help him understand that he did, in fact, fit into that picture and that his presence was really integral to helping solve for health equity. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your journey to the Just Health Collective. Certainly. So Just Health Collective is my my company that I started in, believe it or not, March of 2020. <laughs> the perfect the, the absolute yeah, yeah, perfect like, moment just interesting timing it was one of those things where i had ventured out in january and i was like i'm gonna start my own company so i was working up until the second week of march and i saw things starting to happen and i said you know what i've worked this hard i've always wanted to do this it's my dream it's either going to take off or it's going to fail miserably i don't know but i am at this juncture going to jump into it uh, because I owed it to myself and, and certainly to the work that I'm, I'm trying to do. So at Just Health Collective, uh, we are focused on helping health and healthcare organizations advance in their journey and transformation to be more just and more equitable. And what that means is we provide support services from consulting assessments to implementations to training and facilitation, e-learning courses. And we also have a digital engagement community called the Just Health Collective Village. So our goal is to really help to create a healthcare system that is free of bias and discrimination that gives everyone the opportunity to attain their full health as you and I have discussed, I'm on the board of governors of PCORI, the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, and PCORI is committed to increasing research into health equity. And and from my perspective, the key drivers of equity and health research include routing more research uh, dollars through underrepresented community groups solving problems in their own communities and building the capacity for community leaders to become co-PIs, primary investigators. So from your perspective, what research questions could inform your health equity work? Like, we don't need research to say, that there are inequities. We know that. It's yeah. a given. But what do you think, like, 
what would help what would help you what would help inform your work yeah thank you for that question when i think about what would be informative for us it is what are the the key driver i think we now have an understanding that racism is a key driver of health inequity but racism is such a broad term and it can show up in many different ways and so we need to isolate is it interactions with a provider clinician that are driving this is it process interactions meaning an organization has set up a set of processes that make a decision that you get this treatment or that treatment and how often or not is a person of color getting the recommended treatment versus a white person is there disparity being caused there i also think it's really important to figure out what interventions are going to accelerate change and when i think about interventions i'm thinking a bit macro so how does for instance the centers for medicaid and medicare services think about their payment models and requirements within their payment models that are going to drive organizations to pay attention and and strategically think about solving for health equity because they are now incented to do so and paid to do. We are a capitalist society. People in the business of healthcare make rational decisions based off of business information. And if our financing of the system does not take into account how we solve for health equity, then it will be that much more challenging to get people to just automatically buy in and produce interventions that make change. So I'm interested in the the relationship of root causes and interventions. Cuz it seems like if I'm hearing you right, if you understand what the key drivers are. So maybe you said drivers instead of root causes. But mm-hmm. okay, drivers and then what works to ameliorate those drivers. Mm-hmm. Can you say more a little more like flush that out a little bit for me? Give me some yes. examples. Yes. So when we think about social determinants of health, which are the conditions in which people live, grow, work, play, that ultimately either positively or negatively impact their health, we need to understand, for instance, if a person has food insecurity, meaning they don't have access to healthy foods, they may not be able to afford healthy food, they may not even understand the nutritional value of things that they are eating. That food insecurity ultimately is going to have a downstream impact on their weight, whether or not they end up getting diabetes or high blood pressure or heart disease. And so we need to understand if we intervene at a food level, how much success might we have in mitigating a disparity? And that intervention could be a community level intervention. So mm-hmm. purposefully planning out fresh food markets in areas that traditionally may not have the access to that type of market, right? Thinking about that and planning when we do city development, 
how we ensure that certain neighborhoods get the right things that they need in order to solve for those social determinants of health. And then on the back end, really understanding the downstream impact of those changes. And it's going to be longitudinal, right? Because these aren't overnight changes, but we need to be able to prove that there is value in investing there because we want to Rather than live in a sick care system, we want to envision a healthcare system that is about wellness. And in order to do, we have to connect the dots of what's happening outside of the healthcare system that is impacting health and showing healthcare leaders who are making decisions that investing in things like housing for homelessness or prescription food pharmacies makes sense to solving for healthcare disparities. So one of the things that that I'm hearing or that it's triggering for me as I'm listening to you now is that communities have a different time frame than organizations do. So communities think in terms of generations. And organizations think in terms of months and years. Mm-hmm. So how does that incongruity, if I could say that, that different frame, how does that affect your work? That's a very good question, a little challenging to answer, but I'm going to try. Okay. So um, we do very much work with organizations typically looking at a year basis, particularly mm-hmm. if we're doing a very large scale um, change management progress process. And you're right. Communities are thinking longitudinally, but the reason that organizations are thinking in months or years really has to do with their financial positioning and closing books, et cetera. However, most organizations have a three to five year strategic plan. And part of what we do is to help organizations understand that health equity needs to be a part of your strategy at a large level. It needs to be connected to your mission and vision and your strategy. And if you can connect it to the longer term strategy, you can see how things like investing in, you know, affordable housing may be a longer term strategy. But in the meantime, you're also now starting to address, for instance, unconscious bias with your staff members. And that could occur within months, right? Yeah. Um, So it is multimodal in terms of the timing. There are going to be some activities that are years down the road, but require thoughtful planning, collaboration with community-based organizations, government entities, other corporate organizations. But then there are things that you can be doing to clean up the inside of your house, Mm -hmm. which help to get you prepared to be able to address some of those external factors. Thank you. We're chatting with Dwayne Reynolds, founder and CEO of the Just Health Collective, with a mission to guide organizations in creating cultures of belonging 
enabling a fair and just opportunity for everyone to achieve optimal health. Your work is to, like, on your website, I can see that your work is to serve healthcare organizations embracing their role in battling historical and systemic injustice. But it seems like when you work with organizations, the execution of your work actually involves individuals. So whether it's the C-suite or the board. And in my experience, almost everybody has struggled with inequity in their lives in some level, whether it's ableism or homophobia homophobia or class or birth order. How do you leverage a self-perception mm-hmm. of inequity to meet organizational challenges? Did that make sense? It, it absolutely does make sense because I have to think in that vein a lot. So you're very right. When we think about, in particular, racism and people's relationship with racism, understanding of racism, understanding that it's a system at play, it, it gets complicated, but it there are really three levels that we've got to be working at. We've got to be working at an individual level. So how do I understand my own contributions, whether intentional or not, whether aware or not, to systemic racism. Then the next level would be about your interpersonal interactions with individuals, interactions with institutions, laws, regulations, etc. And then the last level, which is the macro level, is really about systemic racism and understanding that systemic racism is both historical and current day. So there are things that happen in history that have had lasting impact on why certain demographic group experience things like health disparities or economic instability or educational disparities. So I have to be concerned with educating individuals, helping them understand how to relate to one another interpersonally on a different level, and then helping the institution, usually a hospital or health system, think about their role in how they set up systems of belonging for their own employees, but then their responsibility to their patients and the community as well. That I said a mouthful. Down to a nutshell, there are three levels that you've got to be focused on, individual, interpersonal, and systemic. We address all three. So uh, two things. One is I like your use of the word belonging. And I think the first time we spoke, you defined a belonging as an intersection of equity, diversity, and inclusion. Yes. And I can relate to belonging. That's like really, you can get real personal about belonging. When I ask the question about people's self-perception, I think more people can identify with belonging and not belonging in mm-hmm. their lives. And that's great. I, I find that opens up a whole brain to me, that concept. 
I agree. And it's a newer concept in healthcare. Corporate America has adopted it um, much like they do sooner than us. But it is one in which, to your point, everyone can understand. There are moments when we have all felt like we either belonged or didn't belong. And we know how it made us feel in that. We can empathize with other people feeling like they didn't belong because we now have a point of relating. But then we all have different circumstances that we were, you know, born into or grow into or what have you that may put us in a position of not belonging. And we need to be able to talk about those different circumstances, understand one another, and again, express that empathy, which then allows us to get in and change things that might be, that might have created those situations for people. When I think about your work and I think about how different the settings that you're walking into are, they have something in common. And that is somebody wants to work on it because they're not going to hire somebody if they Mm -hmm. don't know it or don't want to work on it. So that's a commonality. On the other hand, this business of circumstances, both of leadership and of organizations, is really varied. So it must be doing the organizational assessment. So that what of your bag of tricks, tools, whatever, are going to be effective in this particular setting with these particular people, that must be crucial and really challenging. Like even maybe more challenging than delivering the goods. Because if you don't know what you're walking into and what the flavor is of what you're walking into, then... It just seems, I don't know, it's a shotgun approach. Yeah, it can be daunting at times and complicated all the time. And you're right. There are individuals who have asked us to come into the organization and are ready. But we always know that we also are walking into an organization where there are individuals who may not be. And our goal is to help the organization understand why it makes sense to create a space of belonging for their own employees. And then in healthcare, understanding the responsibility to patients in the community. But if we go back to that basic of why it makes sense to create spaces of belonging for your employees, think about what is now being termed the great resignation. People are leaving in droves. Part of this has to do with how they feel about their work environment, whether or not they feel respected, valued, heard, appreciated, compensated, et cetera, et cetera. These are not issues of of diversity in the traditional sense that most people think. But from my lens, I see them as diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. So what we always are trying to do is to look for points of recognition when a person has felt a certain way about not belonging and then tying that to another demographics experience so that they can make the connection. Mm -hmm. What we always try to do and and aren't successful at all times, but we want to start with the leadership team. 
I want to be talking to the C-suite. I want to be talking to the board. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They're setting the direction. And if they are not aligned and bought into this, then it's going to be extremely difficult to make transformative change in the organization. If not impossible. Yeah, absolutely. What has happened over many years of diversity and inclusion work is that you have ground up employee base sort of push to to make change, a women's group, an African-American group, et cetera. These are all important. However, sometimes they can yield what we call performative actions of companies where they say, hey, we love diversity and inclusion and look at our website. We have gone out and purchased some stock photography of Black people and disabled folks and gay people. But that may not really be what their culture is about. And they may say the right things, like a lot of CEOs after our social unrest and the killing of George Floyd. We're going to take a stance. Racism is wrong. We understand and recognize it. But not every organization continue to walk the talk. And at this juncture, I think there are a lot of folks who have said, if this company cannot value me and create a, a space that is safe for me to belong and do my best work, then I need to move out of this because it's affecting my mental health and well-being. So all of this is is connected, right? And so we just try to get... Yeah, to so now you're office. back to the drivers and the financing. And so mm-hmm. interesting. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Um, no, no, no. You're fine. You're fine. It, it is about alignment first. Yeah. And then figuring out, okay, what are the tools that I can use to get people alive? Now a word about our sponsor, Abridge. Use Abridge to record your doctor visit. Push the big pink button and record the conversation. Read the transcript or listen to clips when you get home. Check out the app at abridge.com, A-B-R-I-D-G-E.com, or download it on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Record your healthcare conversations. Let me know how it went. What should I have asked you that I, I haven't? I get a lot of questions now about how do I work on reconciling my understanding of racism and learning about it and having challenging discussions that typically I've been uncomfortable having with friends, family, certainly coworkers. How do I do that? Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of people are in the space where they want to, they just are afraid. And the interesting part is we're afraid because we've never been taught to do it. It's like doing anything. Riding a bike for the first time. When you got on, you It's a very weak muscle. Yeah, absolutely. And so it is something that has to be exercised repeatedly in order to gain strength. Okay. Um, And so the first thing that I think people ought to do is seek out as much information on their own as possible in terms of books, videos, training, Start there. And the reason I say start there is because 
at times, people who are part of marginalized groups are asked to explain their marginalization, which actually traumatizes them and re-marginalizes them because it shouldn't be the, the victim's responsibility to get you to where you ought to be. Mm-hmm. Having said that, there are plenty of people like myself who I've made a career of this, but not every black person wants to talk about their victimization for someone else's education. So start the work on your own. Okay. Then find friends, family members, coworkers that you might feel particularly close to, to start the dialogue and ask them some of the questions that you may not feel comfortable asking others, but because you feel safe with them, that they might be willing to have a discussion and help point out things that perhaps you didn't see because of an unconscious bias that you might have. It's important to have those discussions. Then you move outside of that circle and you purposefully try to surround yourself with people that are different than you so you can continue your learning journey. At some juncture, the hope is that you have this aha moment and it's starting to click and you're starting to see that the conditioning that we've always had, maybe people were doing what they could do with the capacity and knowledge that they had at the time. But now we're starting to understand that there was more to this story that Mm -hmm. we needed to be paying attention to. So then you move to a point of, okay, now I can start to take action because I'm seeing it, I'm hearing it, I've learned more, and I have committed to anti-racism, which is certainly I don't believe in racist philosophy and behavior, but beyond belief, you're taking action. I am going to work on dismantling this policy, getting it overturned because it has racist implications, right? I'm going to work with my team that I manage to create a space of inclusion because it matters to belonging. And Mm -hmm. we understand that will actually make us a better. So it is moving from a place of education awareness to growth and to action and change. I think that what you're bringing up about having a trusting community to try stuff, to say stuff, to be ignorant. <laughs> I was really fortunate when I went to nursing school, the almost at Wayne County Community College in Detroit, almost all of the students were middle-aged women of color who had other careers. And there were two white boys from the suburbs in the program. I was one of them. And so it was like my first experience of being a minority. They were very gentle with me. They knew about life. I knew how to study. They knew about life. And and in my over my career now, even now, I'm almost 70, and I still have go-to people 
or when I'm struggling with something that has to do with racism or homophobia or ableism, I can just go be uncensored and say, this is what I'm chewing on. And I don't, I, I don't want to think right now about saying it right. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to just, I'm struggling. Their coaching is helping me clarify, but also how to express it. And it really is, it's a relief to have that, that trusting community to, because I don't know, I just feel this can be, this work can be so fraught. There's so much opportunity for feeling out of it, not belonging in the struggle. Uh, This is pretty amazing. There's a lot of food for thought here. This is, I really appreciate this. And uh, I just had this feeling we're going to talk again. You're doing such important work. Thank you. Again, I appreciate you inviting me. It is an honor. The work for me is work of passion and purpose. I feel called to do it. And it, it is truly what I hope to leave behind in the world to put it in a better place than I found it. I always try to keep that top of mind as I have conversations and think about why I'm doing this work. So it is always uh, very helpful to me. And I'm a very appreciative of people like you who are giving me the opportunity to express this message and to hopefully change uh, the healthcare system as we know it. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. All right. Bye. The last big argument I had with my mom a month or so before she died was when she said that the Holocaust was the worst genocide, the most racist in history. I said, Ma, what about Native Americans, African Americans, Rwandans, Armenians, and on and on? How can you say it was the Jews? A pointless argument. She lived that experience. I didn't. Violent not belonging is certainly personal. Since Dwayne and I chatted a few weeks ago, I've reflected on my privilege, my purpose in this later stage of my life, and the action steps I can take to further health justice and health equity. We are born into the world with some gifts. The challenge is to recognize and use those gifts in the service of the community. I'm no longer ashamed of the gift of privilege, but although I'm first-generation American, I share responsibility for historic and systemic racism and inequity of my country. I'm grateful for the gift of family, charisma, energy, and positive outlook. I have a platform my podcast, and my connections. I'm invited to sit at the tables of governance, thought, and action. I strive to open more seats at the table for less represented folk. I look for small opportunities to make a significant impact. I take risks, because the risk to me, after all, is low. I'm privileged. Most importantly, I welcome others and invite them to belong. Belonging, the intersection of diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
We have so much work to do. Onward. See the show notes, previous podcasts, and other resources through my website, www.health-hats.com. Please subscribe and contribute. If you like it, share it. Thanks. See you around the block.